This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of Real Estate Is Your Business is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Hi, I'm Vishal Garg. I'm the founder and CEO of Better Mortgage. What I love about real estate is that it uh, it's it's something that serves a basic human need. Where you live is an expression of what, what you are, where you hope to be. And it's something that is also a great investment. So it's something that grows with you as, as you grow. Mortgage literally derives from the Latin for death pledge. But why should it look and feel like such a burden? In this conversation, you'll hear from a mortgage expert who will share how his company is using technology to make mortgages better, with pre-approvals in as little as three minutes. From New York City, you're listening to Real Estate Is Your Business, powered by Preview, a smart online real estate brokerage providing expert advice without the high fees. With real estate tech entrepreneur Thomas Kutzman and business development expert Scott Pollock. The mortgage market is a massive market, you know, 13 plus trillion dollars. And it's been dominated by, you know, the top five banks are, you know, almost a third of the entire mortgage market. Um, Why is it that you think it hasn't progressed and hasn't modernized as fast uh, as other parts of uh, other industries? I I think it's a a great question. So I would say it's one of the last sort of oligopolies out there. And it's, uh, you know, the Internet was supposed to effectively disintermediate or uh, remove the inefficiencies in a lot of industries, but the mortgage market, because of its complexity, its size, and and the barriers to entry, uh, is w- sort of one of the last handouts uh, of the phone, fax, face to face way of doing uh, things. And uh, and 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 you know, just to get started in the mortgage market, uh, in the mortgage business, you basically either are brokering loans or, uh, you know, brokering real estate. But realistically, to do, you know, to get started as a mortgage bank where you can actually even attempt to take on some of the incumbents, you need at least $20 million of capital. So traditionally, that level of capitalization has not been available to to early stage startups. So most of the innovation that you've seen in the mortgage business has been on the customer acquisition side, lead generation, processing, software, rather than actually at the core of it, which is uh, a full-scale mortgage bank. What is it that's driving that $20 million requirement? Is that just a round number, or is there an actual regulation that says you need to have a certain amount in... That 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 number seems to be the minimum number that you need to have in terms of capitalization to be able to uh, make mortgages and then finance them with either Wall Street or the other bigger banks. And it kind of makes sense if you think about it. The average mortgage is sort of like uh, $250,000 in size. So if you need to – if you're going to get into the mortgage business – if you can't fund a hundred mortgages, uh, then you know what's the point of putting out your shingle. So basically, uh, most of these large financial assets are pool- pooled into pools of thousands of mortgages at a time. Um, so it seems to be like that's the tiniest little step function on the ladder out there. And as far as the the key friction points, what do you what do you think are the biggest, you know, most overwhelming parts of the process that are that are ripe to be fixed? Sure. I think uh, first. Uh, helping consumers figure out how much they can afford. I think that's 
a huge, huge part of the process. Uh, you know, we've had multiple housing crises or mortgage crises in this country. Uh, we had the SNL crisis, and then you know we thought we were done with real estate bringing down the banking system. Um, then we had uh, the crisis post 9/11, where it was more of a consumer credit. Uh, oriented crisis where consumers couldn't pay. And then right after that, you know, literally eight, eight years after that, we had the housing crisis or the credit crisis, which was the biggest sort of crisis since we had seen in since the Great Depression. And uh, I think uh, a lot of that happens because people are, uh, you know, the commission structure of the business incentivizes all of the counterparties that have knowledge about houses uh, who are transacting every day to urge consumers to take out as big of a house as they possibly can, right? To spend as much money because, um, you know, the realtor is making, you know, 6% on the transaction, 3% on the buy side, 3% on the sell side. The mortgage broker is getting paid 1% of uh, the total loan amount. So obviously they're incentivized to increase that. And so giving consumers actually an amount, which is, hey, this is the most that you can afford. Now go out and find houses. That has never really existed before Better came along. What about things like pre-approval <clears throat> and, and uh, having a number in your mind from what you're allowed or expect to get a loan before you go out? Um, pre-approvals have existed, but they haven't been easy to get. So I started the company uh, Better uh, because it took me three weeks to get a pre-approval from a top three national lender. And and I was, you know, I was at that time, uh, I had a great job. I was managing multiple billions of dollars of assets in real in mortgage and and, and uh, student loans. Uh, my wife was an MD at, an, at, a, at a major bank. And we thought like, oh, my God, if it's that hard for us, how hard is it for an average everyday person who's buying a starter home in in uh, in, in somewhere in northern New Jersey or in, in Long Island? And and I know from personal experience how hard it was for my father, who was a small business owner, uh, to get a mortgage back in, you know twenty years ago, and it felt like the process hadn't changed at all uh, since the early nineteen nineties. And you mentioned three weeks, you know, during your experience in the past. How in comparison, how does better? How long does better take to do that? Three minutes. Three minutes, and how are you able to achieve that sort of three-minute approval versus the you know, traditional sort of lenders? Yeah. So in a traditional uh, lending uh, environment, you'll basically first uh, try to you know they'll ask you to either like if you're like going to Wells Fargo or Citibank, they'll force you literally to go to the branch and sit there, wait for somebody who's a licensed loan officer to come and talk to you. Then that licensed loan officer is going to ask you a whole bunch of data fields, right, about yourself, name, address, social security number, how much money you make, you'll type that into a system. And then that system basically goes in, into a processing and underwriting uh, assembly line is the best way. They call it a workflow, but really an assembly line where someone's going to take your social security number and check whether the income that you uh, said uh, was correct and type it into a system and say, is this correct? And if not, like, how do they, you know, figure that out? Then another person's going to look at all your debts and manually look at a credit bureau and say, how much do you owe? What's your monthly payment? Then th someone else will take the income number and the debt number and calculate your debt to income ratio. And then someone else will try to figure out how much the house that you want to buy is worth and using another system. And then someone else will try to, f and, you know, they will say, oh, what's the loan amount that you want? And then calculate your LTV. Literally, there are 28 people involved in making a mortgage like this at a typical bank. And what we did was we take the data from you. We assume you're telling the truth. We send the data to all these third-party verification 
systems via an API, an application programming interface, where the response is immediate. We perform the calculations with the within the system itself, and we're able to return this back to almost instantaneously, and actually with a higher degree of certainty than those 28 people at a traditional bank. Now, the three-minute process, is that for pre-approval or pre-qualification? That's for pre-approval. And, you know, for first-time homebuyers that wouldn't necessarily be aware of the difference, you know, how, do you, how would you describe the difference? The, a pre-qualification is usually uh, sort of stated, right, where the bank, the mortgage broker uh, or the loan officer of the bank is saying, oh, okay, yeah, you make this much, you owe this much. It's sort of all declared. And so they don't actually check any of the things. So w- this assembly line that I just talked to you, they just do some back-of-the-envelope calculations and put it through. Um, they're not actually trying to figure out uh, where the financing is going to come from. Usually it's actually only one place, right? So if you're like, you know, a Wells Fargo, then you're just coming from Wells Fargo. They're, they're, or, you know, you're Quicken Loans, you're just coming from there, or it might be. Um, what they're doing is just assuming the facts and then coming back to you with a number. Um, a pre-approval is something where the numbers are verified, where they're actually checking those numbers that you've entered in. They're checking your credit. They're calculating all your debts and then coming back to you with a price and a quote that's reasonable and where they have a high degree of confidence that you're going to uh, you're going to be able to access that financing. And I think that's the difference. So before you were mentioning that, you know, everybody in the traditional mortgage industry has their their need for their pound of flesh, right? And everyone therefore encourages, mm-hmm. you know, higher and higher mortgage amounts. So how does that differ for you guys? How are you not incentivized by the same kind of adverse effect of saying, let's take out as much as you can? Well, I think one of the things is very different is that our uh, loan consultants are not paid on commission. So that was the first thing that we did. Um, we we said no one in the entire company is going to work in any kind of uh, sort of commission that touches the consumer is going to work in any kind of commissioned fashion uh, because we want to give the best advice to the consumer. Uh, we want to show them all the options that are available to them. And we want to be agnostic as to which option that they choose, which is the one that fits them best. And, you know, force over time, really use the technology as a tool to figure out which options serve the experience should be not like um, walking into like Best Buy and looking at a gazillion different phones and then having the sales guy like route you to a Samsung because there's a promotion running that, you know, he gets paid extra for. The The, the experience should be walking into an Apple store and talking to one of their geniuses and saying, hey, okay, how are you going to use this product? What are you going to get out of it? And then if you buy it, it's cool. You can you don't buy it. That's cool. If you want to test it, you want to come back later. You want to do the rest of it online. It's all just, you know. Um, a far more consultative, high-touch, uh, high-quality, but non-sort of judgmental, non-routing uh, process. And as far as the the number of products you have available, you said you it goes out to a sort of a, almost like a marketplace of multiple lenders. How did how did you go about building that sort of marketplace? Sure. Of so we have now twenty one financing partners. They comprise seventy percent of the entire mortgage market and the demand for mortgages. Uh, most of them are not even sources of financing that consumers can access. They're the sort of types of financing that eventually, like a Quicken Loans or others, go and then finance with. So we decided we're we're financing directly with Fannie Mae. So you you know that's the lowest cost of capital because it's effectively the U.S. government. We're financing directly with major insurance companies, uh, AIG Nationwide and the like. And again, lowest cost of capital, people who want to hold that loan, uh, that's cash flow stream for 30 years, not just like sort of take it, flip it, and, and so on and so forth. And so we went about figuring that out primarily by looking at 
what are the types of loans that our consumers need? So one of the great things about being digital is that, you know, you sort of have flow, right? You start to see, oh, okay, great. Like there are all these people that want to buy a condo in San Francisco. So do we have a great financing, a set of financing partners for condos in San Francisco? Well, you know, no, we, we may or may not have that. Or, you know, these are the things that could be better. Um, and so, you know, well, like the homeowners association questionnaire sometimes takes two weeks or three weeks from each of these things. Well, can we figure out a way to do it digitally? Is there, are there financing partners that will work with us to take it digitally rather than requiring a fax form every time from the homeowners association office, right? And those are the types of ways that we look at financing partners. It's not just trying to figure out where they're, one, obviously, uh, financing costs for the consumer, but more importantly, can we eliminate unnecessary friction? Does that require a lot of change on your partner's side? Uh, typically, uh, it's not about change on the partner side. Uh, it, 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 it's usually us dealing with the brain damage in a way. So we run our business 24-7, right? So one, we do a lot of work at night. Uh, the brain damage work at night that we don't necessarily then need to have to expose to the consumer. So we try to take the consumers already got a tough enough time, like they're spending months and months and every weekend trying to find the house of their dreams. They got enough time, like having them chase after a homeowners association and calling Becky in the HOA office, who's got sitting next to the fax machine, has been at that job for 30 years and is not planning to go away. She's not planning to get digitized, right? So having someone call her five times, seven times to get that document done and done, for, that's a lot of where our secret sauce is, is that, you know, we're taking that and not giving that work back to the consumer, which is what a typical bank will do is like, oh, you got to go get us this form. We're like, well, how do I go get it? Well, go figure it out, right? And you're sort of sitting there trying to figure it out. Is so there's, that, there's still that, a big, there's still a human element to it, even though you've brought a lot of technology and Yeah, and uh, there's a huge amount of human element, but the human's uh, on our side are working on things that are empowering for the consumer, uh, not sort of take thinking of it as like order taking. So it seems like even in the the mortgage industry, the, the user experience changes that are becoming so prevalent across the rest of the digital age are, are really what's making the big wave of change. Yeah, I, I would say there's there's three like, you know, sort of the mortgage industry, I would say, is is like a fax machine. Right. And we're talking like, how do we take this sort of thing that works like a fax machine and turn it into broadband? Right. And so there's multiple steps of it. First is, hey, let's just take everybody online. Right. So there are a lot of companies now that have like, you know, effectively Google Forms for entering your data. Right. So you don't have to sit there sitting in a branch, have to go there literally and have to. Now, why does why do they force you to go to a branch? Because a salesperson gets paid a commission. Right. So he wants to see you face to face. He wants to, you know, establish rapport, quote unquote, so that you stick with them versus like going to somebody else who might have a cheaper rate or whatever else. So in this day and age, talking to someone in person is just anathema to what we all want to be doing. Yeah, I totally right. Especially like not that. And, and guess when banks are open? Nine to five, Monday to Friday, right? Like there were most people that we see come in, they want to like do this when they put their kids to bed. Right. Like, you know, they're usually like 37, 38. They've got a kid that's like and, and they, they want to they work on this stuff once they've you know gone to sleep. And so, you know, one of our core value propositions is like we're we're awake when you're awake looking for a mortgage, whereas everyone else is asleep. Right. It's kind of like mortgage brokers and car dealers are like the two businesses that kind of stick to that that sort of face to face because we're trying to sell you. So taking them off that path. Right. First is enabling it online. Second is once you enable it online, now the data is clean. 
right? And you can go and resolve variances and different things. So you're not resolving things that like look iffy at day 25 or day 30 on the way to closing, but actually resolving them at minute 25, minute 30. And so you have a higher degree of certainty. And then the third process is automation, which is like, well, let's not have people do things that machines are good at doing and are better at doing. And then the fourth step is once you have automation is you can drive it to like a delightful unified experience where you have certainty. And that's sort of, hey, can we take all of these things that are automated and rather than taking 60 days like a traditional mortgage bank to do them, can we take do them in like six hours and run it parallel process and do that? And then if you're able to do that, then you can bring certainty, which is like some of the stuff we're doing in some of our markets now where we're uh, giving people one-day commitment letters or closing guarantees, right, where we turn them into a cash buyer. We're able to do that in 24 hours because we've parallel processed everything. So you talked about the fact that, you know, the traditional banks have 28 people in the mix, but you also have humans that are actually getting involved with some, you know, That's right. machine but, help. But they're doing the things that, that are, that are uh, still not digitizable. Right. But what is to stop the, the five big banks from, from doing the same? Like, why is it that they haven't gone down the same path that Better Mortgage is going? Uh, Wells Fargo has 42,000 licensed mortgage loan officers that last year probably took home $9 billion in commissions. And those are the people that run the bank. So, you know, are they going to self-commodify themselves? No, banks don't typically have a good history of doing that. Banks have a history of signing you up for all sorts of shit that you don't need, right? Like, and, uh, and, and adding fees and surcharges and all that sort of stuff rather than, uh, than, than being truly uh, customer first, right? Uh, fundamentally, also, the, the industry has taken a path and said a consumer only gets a mortgage once every seven years. So who cares that it's painful? Well, actually, we look at it and I say, you know, it kind of goes back to the first question. I consume a mortgage every day. Like it's in my housing payment. It's how much money I spend. Like I don't buy a house for $700,000. I buy a house for $3,200 a month, right? And, 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 and so I think the entire nature of the industry is focused around helping other people in the industry. So like a bank is focused on the per- is not focused on the consumer. They're focused on the realtor who's sending them the lead or they're focused on the title agent that like is working with them to get the title clear. They're, they're, they're not focused on the end consumer. They're focused on like almost a B2B business. Now you'd mentioned the sort of short term commitment letters or the faster speed. Cause you know, in classic residential real estate that, you know, I'm involved with, it takes sort of four to six weeks for the underwriting process. And, you know, everybody's focused on the whole mortgage contingency, especially yeah. younger buyers. Yeah. Um, how are you mar- out marketing that? Because it, it seems like a very revolutionary thing to be able to do such a fast commitment letter. Uh, we've just started marketing it in certain geographics. So, so I didn't think about this when uh, when I went through the process myself. Right, we had a little. I, I like I lost the apartment I was going to buy to a cash buyer, and I was like, that sort of seems unfair. Like you don't start in America. You know, I'm an immigrant. You don't come to America, and you're like oh, I need to get 100% of my purchase price in cash to go buy a place. Like, nobody ever thinks that. They think, oh, I, I need to aim to save, like, 20% so I can buy a place. So if I'm going to buy a place, you know, for, like, $700,000, I need to save 140 k and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's quite a feat unto itself. Yeah, which is quite a feat unto itself, especially with people spending $200,000 for a college education. And, and, you know, unless they're rich, like, having student loans and so on and so forth. So you first got to pay off your loans, then you – or, you know, not. And then, and then you know, you, you just got to uh, still save some money. So – I think it's quite a feat to get to that 20%. And 
what was perverse was that the fact that you know you you had these people that, that whether it's foreign buyers, private equity firms, anyone, they're sort of the cash buyers, and there's a discount. So in New York City, uh, tri-state area, it's fourteen percent. So a house that costs me five hundred thousand dollars simply because I want to get a mortgage, which is a piece of paper, right, costs somebody else like. $425,000. That's crazy. That, that, that price difference, simply because the industry can't get its act together. It's, you know, it's a, like, for lack of a better word, sort of six weeks to manufacture a piece of paper. And, 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 and that doesn't make any sense. Now, from a seller's perspective, I understand why, right? They don't want what happens to a house that sits on the market for, for two months longer. That's like a stale house that, you know, and so you totally get like, you know, brokers say, oh, well, that's going to go down in price by 5%, 10%. So, of course, you know, someone's going to take a, uh, an all-cash bid versus a mortgage bid. So um, when we encounter this problem, we're like, how can we help our consumers that are coming to us, getting pre-approved with us? How can we help them win this? And we're like, well, the way we can help them win this is by effectively making the mortgage a non-event right? And turning everyone into a cash buyer. And so we worked with uh, a, a realtor in Seattle that was dealing with a lot of millennial customers. And um, and we perfected the process. How do we get the the proof of fund letter to be as good as possible, as strong as possible? Oh, like initially, like we're like, okay, we'll, we'll stand behind this. And, the, and, and, you know, the seller's agent said, I don't know about that, right? Who are you? And then we said, well, you know, we're this and this and this. I was like, that didn't matter. Eventually, we discovered literally the only way to do this was for us to take the mortgage money that we were going to disperse to fund the mortgage, put it into a escrow account at a bank for the consumer to put their money into the escrow account at a bank. And so that it looks like exactly like a proof of funds, like we have the cash sitting there. And then once we discovered that, we're like, actually, that's better than a cash buyer because the money is sitting there at the bank it can be released any day, not just Monday to Friday, actually, because you have closings that take place Saturday, Sunday, and we can do it much faster than even a cash buyer typically can. And so the certainty level we could inject for a mortgage as with digital is, is, is almost higher than a cash buyer. And then we actually started helping people win, like helping consumers, um, consumers with like 8% down payments. Now you say eight percent, but what's the sort of average you're seeing of down? Like, it's the twelve percent down. Twelve percent down. The, For millennial the, home buyers, it's like twelve uh, percent down. Uh, we have a Fannie Mae product that goes down to five percent down for a first time home buyer, and we will, you know, if you come through in the markets that where you now have this product uh, launched in, uh, it's sort of five major markets. Uh, we will get you a. We'll turn. We'll take your five percent down uh, consumer and turn them into a cash buyer. They now, can waive their mortgage and finance. Does that include PMI, or is is the borrower paying PMI as well? On there that? is PMI on the five to tw- uh, to twenty percent amount, and then that uh, PMI goes away when the home gets revalued uh, to uh, to an amount where the down payment, is, where the homeowner's equity in the in the in in the house is, is at uh, eighty is at twenty percent. So just so I can understand, so you're taking the traditional twenty percent down and reducing that to 5 to 12%, and that's purely based on the kind of underwriting capabilities, right. the automation, that's right, um, and the proof of funds ability to have all the funds in the bank? Not only that, um, we're doing it at the same price. So you're, you're, you're getting these mortgages at 3.8%, 3.6%. You're getting it at the same price as, as, as you would a traditional mortgage. It's, it strikes me as hard to, hard to understand, hard to believe. That, we're shrinking that... the information asymmetry. And by shrinking the information asymmetry, we're shrinking the discount rate. It gets right. It, so the discount rate is: can this consumer afford this mortgage? Like it's underwritten on a debt to income ratio, on a future debt to future income ratio, right? And so the consumer can afford the mortgage. Is the house worth what it is? 
And by doing it digitally, we're removing the, in and by getting rid of the commissioned loan officer who's incentivized to put you into a uh, traditionally more expensive, a uh, higher loan amount product, by getting rid of them, the investors are saying, well, great, you've taken away all the kind of bad actors and the bad credit underwriting. You've made it like entirely digital. Uh, we, we'll fund this at the same rate. So but you can that, reduce but, friction, reduce cost. In, that increases the comfort level of the banks, and that's how you guys are doing it. That's right. Okay. But just looking at, for, like, when we look back to the sort of financial crisis when, you know, sort of credit standards, lending standards were re more relaxed, people were putting smaller down payments. Are the lenders worried about such small down payments in the event of, you know, another shock or, you know, down the road? Because we've been in one of the, you know, longest bull markets now for equity markets and real estate's at all-time highs. Is, are there fears there that we relive another sort of you know bubble? Um, so low down payment. We actually have a blog post on our site. The low down payment mortgages don't end up defaulting at a higher rate. Low down payment mortgages underwritten by mortgage brokers where the appraisals are inflated, uh, where the ninja loans, no job, no assets, right? Where the income is misstated, where the asset level is misstated, where the reserves are misstated. Uh, the bulk of defaults, I would say, I think, um, you know, looked at like uh, all the mortgage pools that got securitized, 47% of them had an inflated appraisal where the appraiser, the mortgage broker, and the real estate broker were all in cahoots. So a cleaner cleaner data before leads to better results after in a lower sort of, uh, you know, drop off, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, um, you know, if you really think about it, what the the lender needs to verify is... Uh, the house is worth what you say it's worth or what the market says it's worth. And two, will you have the ability to afford it? And if you're a first-time home buyer and you're competing against a whole bunch of other people to get into this house and you're actually a, an end consumer, not an investor, right? You're not like buying a second home and calling it a first home, which was also an owner occupancy was a massive, uh, you know, source of fraud and defaults. Uh, but like if you're if you're actually consuming that house and that is the place where you live and where you, where, where you raise your children, um, the likelihood of persistence is actually way higher. No, that's uh, you know, fantastic stuff. And you know, we're just going to take a brief uh, pause and dig deeper into your story and uh, into, into the story of Better Mortgage and how it came to be. to buy a home in New York City? Get more with Preview's industry-leading smart buyer rebate. Seamlessly search listings on Preview's end-to-end -end buyer platform, purchase your home with the expert advice of a local agent, plus receive up to 2% cash back thanks to Preview's smart buyer commission rebate. Smart buyers get more with Preview. Go to previewapp.com backslash buyer. That's P-R-E-V-U-A-P-P dot com backslash buyer. Keep up with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Real Estate Biz Show and with hashtag Mouth Media. Plus, check out all of the Mouth Media Network shows at mouthmedianetwork.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Why do you think the consumer hasn't pushed back on that yet and said, like, enough is enough, like, I need, I need help, I want information? Um, because if you talk to the bulk of people in the mortgage industry, their thought process is, is if we get them on the phone, then that converts. 
right? And if it's like it's like mortgages, life insurance, banking products, they always think those are products that are sold, not bought. And I think millennials hate being sold to, right? More than any other you know customer ever. Like who go like no, they don't want to buy like Casper. Like just the idea of like going into a mattress store and being sold to by a mattress salesperson mattress professionals mattress professionals right exactly i remember when i moved to new york and like you know i had to go get a mattress at a sleepies it was like on the upper west side above like grace papaya or something and you just go there and you're like how do i know what is the deal and like it's a very similar product right like there's a core product like there's a fannie mae funded conforming mortgage and it comes in 172 different forms with different, you know, people like attaching labels to it so they can earn their one to two percent commission. So, um, you know, I think that that's that you're very right. It, the industry has done a really poor job. And second, um, the industry couldn't do a better job because nobody had bothered to connect all the systems. So if if you want to give somebody an answer online, you actually have to bother to connect all the systems around this very complicated process. And nobody had done that. Uh, and then lastly, anyone who is doing anything intelligent in this business had their brains blown out with the credit crisis. So basically, um, all the folks that were doing uh, more interesting things um, basically got shut down when the banks basically took over the entire uh, financial system. And the biggest banks got to take over all the small banks. And uh, they basically shut it all down. So you're talking about an entire industry that basically for whom the credit crisis was sort of like a cancer-like event. They had to like chop off arms and legs and, and you know, they didn't chop off the arms and the legs. They certainly didn't chop off the mouth, but they did chop off the brains. So you're taking on some pretty large incumbents, right? And and any time a disruptor comes in, there's often a tax on that, that company, whether it's the uh, kind of regulators or the incumbents. Have you faced anything like that? I, I think the incumbents, they look in the mirror and they're like, uh, it's really, and, and they say, there's got to be better. There's got to be a better way to do this. So one of the interest, like, so I thought about that, right? I was like, okay, how are we going to create a platform, right? Where six of the seven largest banks in the country are financing off our platform, right? And are providing financing to our customers. And so traditionally, financial technology companies have suffered from a cost of capital disadvantage. So like a regulatory disadvantage, cost of capital disadvantage. And frequently, they end up having to uh, pass that on to the consumer or absorb it. And, they're, 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 and therefore, they're terrible businesses, right? They're, 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 you can't really invest. So you see this with like small business lending, right? Where, yeah, you can get a, a loan from on deck or a cabbage and all that. And it's faster slightly but in exchange, you got to pay instead of paying five percent of the bank, you're paying twelve percent to those guys, and maybe it's good enough. But like you know, the, the I didn't want to do that. So when I talked, to, when I started the company, I met with a lot of the folks from the industry. And I was like, "Why is this process not like this?" And he's like, "Well, it's just inertia. I can't get past it. I can't. I, I'm I'm looking in the rearview mirror, and the bank was so compliance centric and is so." Uh, has so much scar tissue from the credit crisis that we can't innovate. We are not innovating. So it's great if you're innovating, we'll help you like be our innovation arm. So literally for six of the seven banks in the country, we don't compete with the banks. We compete with their branches and their internal people and their processors. And, you know, there's 17,000 people pushing a PDF from one, emailing it to each other. And they don't want that. You talk to the head guy, they don't want that either. 
they, they, they really like they would rather have a better way and we're almost sort of showing them the that that a better system exists outside the traditional sort of mortgage broker licensed loan officer interface no, it's almost like you I mean if you're an aircraft carrier it's a lot tougher to sort of turn turn the ship rather than sort of maneuver around the waves in a smaller boat yeah um but but seeing the way you're improving the process would it be a natural fit down the road for one of these large incumbents to you know buy someone like you or you know sofi or you know a, a newer model originator i don't think they have to buy a, I, we're not selling to a bank because we're already funding with the bank we're funding with the bank. Today, you can go on better.com and get a mortgage that Citibank might finance cheaper than you can on Citibank.com. So right now, like we have had some customers where uh, it was a Wells Fargo customer. They came in, and we were able to give them a better rate than Wells Fargo was, and with Wells Fargo's money. So if you think about it, like we don't need to sell to a bank. We are... You know, we're building the Amazon of real estate where, like, it's like you go to Amazon.com and you can get Nike sneakers on Amazon.com cheaper than you can on Nike.com. And for a while, Nike fought it until they eventually capitulated. And I think that's, you know, our, our model is, is to do that. And so, um, you know, we do have some investors that are banks, like uh, one of our largest investors is Goldman Sachs. Uh, we are working with other banks that have wanted to be investors in the platform. But fundamentally, banking is, you know, traditional banking, the user interface to banking, the onboarding process to banking is fundamentally broken. At the top levels at any of those banks, they would tell you, like, that experience that you get in the branch today is not the experience they want it to be. Um, but, you know, they're they're burdened by their past. They just can't. It's, it would be like going to GM. It's like, should you be make should, should GM be making electric cars? Yes. Should GM still have dealers? No, like, do, do they, should they be like Tesla, with which owns its own dealership? Yes. But like, you know, there's states like Michigan, you can't even like buy a car directly from the manufacturer to protect the auto dealer. So like, you know, is the user interface of an auto dealer? Great. No car company CEO would say, you get an awesome experience going into a car dealer, right? And specifically a used car dealer. So I, I think, I think, I think it's only time. You know, one of the the kind of common debates nowadays in the technology industry at large is the idea that while on the one hand, consumers benefit from disruptive technologies and make things more efficient, cheaper, et cetera, the flip side is is automation displaces jobs. And on the one hand, you know, you're talking about how mortgage brokers and others are incentivized in a way that doesn't necessarily help consumers, but on the other hand, they are the ones that might be replaced by, you know, APIs and automation. How how do you kind of fare on on that front of that debate? Yeah, I, I think uh, a great example of this is the what has happened in equities trading and uh, and, and and the online uh, stock brokering industry. So nineteen, I think seventy four, uh, commissions got deregulated. Like before, it used to cost one percent in and one percent out. So if you wanted to buy five hundred thousand dollars worth of stock, it cost you five grand in, five grand out, so ten grand. Um, and you know, by context, if you want to buy a five hundred thousand dollar apartment or buy or sell a $500,000 apartment in New York City today, it's almost cost you 10%. So it costs you $50,000. So if you sort of see where real estate is, like real estate's like where, you know, online brokerage was 1974. And uh, companies like Charles Schwab and uh, TD Ameritrade and Ameritrade came out, and they started to let you uh, buy stocks over the phone, working in a call center, right? With a, uh, and then they got rid of the commission broker. 
and then you got to do it online. And now that same $10,000 to buy and sell $500,000 worth of stock costs you $10 or even less, right? And along the way, the volume went up by 100 or 1,000x. Just the percentage of people that could buy stocks and have that as part of their asset allocation that could participate in equities, it wasn't just, you know, the, the rich. It became democratized. And it takes 30 years. And, you know, of the 100 stockbrokers from 1974, you would say uh, the bottom 50%, well, they had to find a different job. They had to go and work in a clearinghouse. So they had to do a bunch of things. But they, yeah, life wasn't so good for them, right? They stopped making $200,000 a year. And, 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 and the, the middle guys, they became wealth managers. And, and the top 10% of them, the ones that really used to tell you and find stocks that you wanted to buy, they became hedge fund managers. They actually made more money. So the mortgage brokers today that are actually adding value for the consumer that are really helping them, the realtors today that are helping them adding value, I think those folks are going to actually benefit. They're going to be like the guys that own a seat on the New York Stock Exchange, which went from 650K to 100 times more valuable, right? You know, as part of like, you know, $100 billion, like, you know, uh, uh, market cap, like exchange. Everyone else, they're going to have to find something to do. Now, you brought up a good point about as the commission structure comes down, the transaction volume goes up. And you know, I think the way people look at the the average time they're in a property or, or this declining home ownership is a pure result of it's just such a tax going in and out that you know, you'll know you see shorter ownerships and people are living far more experiential lives where they might only want to live in a certain area for three to five years as opposed to you know seven, nine, ten years because they had to do it before. Well, now they'll have more flexibility as those as those commission rates come down. Totally. I think there's another step change that's going to come is when you'd remove the transaction costs and you'd like remove financing. Like in, in the old days, uh, if I wanted to buy or sell a stock, I had to sell the stock, wait for the money to clear, have the money in my account, and then buy the next stock I wanted to buy. And today just happens seamlessly. Right, you know, and financing helps make that happen. Margin financing that exert. Similarly, if you think about it, like today, if I want to sell a house, literally, I have to sell the house, get the proceeds from that house, to then go buy the house. So, makes investing in property, which is the world's largest tangible asset class, U.S. residential real estate, twenty-nine trillion, global residential real estate, one hundred and sixty-four trillion. It makes it super difficult. Now, if you imagine like one where financing was seamless. I graduate from college and I want to live, I'm living in Murray Hill, but I know over time I want to live in Brooklyn Heights. Well, I can't afford all of Brooklyn Heights. I can't afford to buy a house, but can I buy a 3% of a house in Brooklyn Heights? Then can I work my way up and own 6% of a house in Brooklyn Heights? Can I own 7% of a house in Brooklyn Heights? And then eventually I get to 20% or whatever down. And now I just own a house in Brooklyn Heights, right? And along the way, I've participated in the property value growth and so fractionalization becomes uh, available as you shrink com- commissions. And I think uh, the combination of lower transaction costs in the world's largest asset class plus eventually fractionalization will drive volumes to increase 10x, 100x, 10,000x. The fractionalization you're talking about, is that happening now? Uh, there are places where it's happening. So in uh, you can buy a percentage of a house. Not yeah, the there's a house. there's a. I would encourage like take a look at a, a site called Property Partner. It's in the UK. Uh, UK there's ha- always had a large um, what they call buy to let like a residential investor uh, community, 
but I'd look at Property Partner. Uh, you can buy a percentage of a house. You can they make markets, so you can literally get a bid on it uh, every day, and it's super interesting. It's just it's happening in this very in like the UK is almost like a an American state, like a New York state in, in but like or a California, and it's happening there, and I think it's going to happen everywhere. Who lives in that house? A uh, renter. So it's renting. So but technically, like you know, if you own a house and you live in it, you're renting from yourself. Like the entire idea of ownership of property versus living in it, you know, at some point in time can be abstracted as well. Why do you, you know, maybe you're only supposed to own 63% of the house that you live in and you pay rent to it and, you know, you get... And and that that's like another thing, right? It's like so you have an entire population of baby boomers or or others hitting retirement with these suburban houses that are huge that they don't necessarily want to maintain or they want to move down to to Boca or someplace warm or Scottsdale. How are we going to take all those houses and then you know in, 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 make them affordable for consumers to live in? There's just this entire thing. Sorry. No. So it's not only that. The process of getting a mortgage is changing. The entire idea of what home ownership means and investing in real estate for your for your home is changing. And that yeah. seems like what the opportunity on the table is. Yeah, I think I think we're we're like we're in nineteen seventy four in the real estate business. Now, just one sort of you were talking about the transaction costs, but there's there's another sort of key thing that people, you know, don't always evaluate when they're first going to buy the home is, you know, the property taxes and, you know, the deductibility of mortgage interest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, there's you know a lot of debate going on right now about campaign uh, tax reform. Uh, where do you sort of stand on this changes that are potentially you know coming up as far as the the caps on mortgage interest deductions? Do you think this is going to be a sort of regional issue, or do you think this is a you know sort of broader thing people should be more focused on as a if they're going to buy a home? I I think one. It is an issue that affects less than 5% of homeowners, right, in terms of $500,000 or above for, for mortgage interest. However, I do think it's fundamentally unfair because uh, if you're a property investor and you're investing in that particular house, you're allowed to write off the entire amount of the mortgage interest that you pay relative to the rent that you collect. So it doesn't really make sense uh, you know, people who are buying houses and then living in them, basically paying themselves rent why are they penalized when property investors are not? So it seems a very sort of one-sided and unfair. If they wanted to reduce, you know, to remove the deduction of interest, they should have done it across the board. They should have hurt, you know, they should have done it for property investors as well as homeowners. You'd actually want to penalize property if you want to encourage homeownership, which has all sorts of other effects like investment in communities, a stable tax base, uh, stable labor force, uh, higher voter participation, higher community participation, higher, you know, uh, school participation. All of that, you'd actually incentivize homeowners to the expense of investors, right? You'd remove it for investors, and you'd you'd want to kind of keep it for for homeowners. And instead, you have the reverse going on, which seems very, very politically motivated. Um, yeah, it says, you know, it's it's it, like let's hurt people that um, vote for uh, vote a certain way. And the the sort of average average home buyer isn't necessarily savvy enough to to purchase their property, even if it's their primary residence, in a sort of corporate or you know, business structure to sort of take advantage of those deductions. Yeah, I mean, it would be like if this keeps going, right? 
there should be someone who makes an app called LLC yourself. And literally, like, you have two people, like, one should buy a house in an LLC and rent it to their neighbor, and the neighbor should buy a house and rent it to, to like, them and, like, do the same thing. Like, that's, like, this is how stupid that the whole thing is, is that you can get around it literally for, like, $200 a, a year. The superior audio quality on Mouth Media Network is powered by Sennheiser. And as a listener, you can receive a 25% discount on virtually any headphone, microphone, and other high-quality audio product available to purchase directly on the Sennheiser website. Just visit Sennheiser.com and enter the code MOUTHMEDIASEN, that's MOUTHMEDIA, S-E-N-N, at checkout. This has been such a fascinating conversation. You know, typically we leave some time at the at the end of the recording to go over some personal questions, uh, but we've you know hit so much great stuff about the mortgage market and, and your experience that uh, you know, we're running a little bit short on time. Uh, but you've been kind enough to to bring a, a snack for us. Um, so if you could just tell us you uh, what here. you what you brought here and uh, what made you choose that. Sure. Uh, I, I brought my favorite brand of chips, and uh, they're remarkably healthy. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I used to eat, like, the sort of, like, Lay's Ridges chips and, you know, potato chips. So these are falafel chips. I delude uh, myself into believing falafel is healthy for yeah, me as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, and, and, you know, it's got, like, all sorts of protein goodness. Uh, and uh, I think you'll find that they're uniquely uh, well-flavored. So maybe, uh, maybe maybe dig in. Was a shot. Oh, wow. I feel like I'm... Getting energy and health with every bite. Yeah. They're very tasty, though. So what are some of your other favorite snacks that you, uh, uh, that you enjoy? I eat a lot of chocolate. So, like, running a startup's hard. Are you kind of like a fancy dark chocolate kind of a guy? Or uh, a no, I like the, I, I like these, like, you know, the European, like, milk chocolate with, a, like, cornflakes in it. I, I like the Ritter Sport ones, you know, the yep, little yep. square ones. Oh, I know. Uh, well. they, they have, like, all sorts of different things that you can kind of have them. And they have these tiny little squares that you may they, – they have, like, a like a four chocolate square – little tiny one that you can have and then not feel so guilty about. I try to turn them upside down so I don't see the portioning of the squares. <laughs> and I don't feel as bad when I eat the entire bar at once. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm a, you know, I'm a dad of three. So like work starts at six in the morning and yeah. then like it ends around 9 a.m. when I get to the office. And then, you know, nine to six, it's like fun. <laughs> and then it starts again at six. It's a sort of then you, then much, you, much harder constituents. Some, you're still some goldfish when you need, you need yeah. a craving. Yeah. How do you run a startup with three young kids? I assume young kids. Yeah, there's two, four, and six. They're yeah. awesome. Like, I, you know what it is? I think uh, it. I'm, I've gotten really good at focusing on the most important thing I need to do because um, you just basically time management. You get really, really good at managing your time, and then, you know, you just kind of keep going. So aside from, like, you know, as, as long as you're well-caffeinated, you're fine. <laughs> and uh, sleep, you know, you sleep later. You sleep. sleep uh, I, I think I, you have kids? I have two kids. I have a yeah. seven-year-old and a three-year-old. Nice. Yeah. That's great. So I feel your pain. Yeah. I still, I mean, I still that, have plenty of extra time. No, yeah. No kids yet. Yeah, no, I mean, but, like, you know, it's also amazing. Like, you come home from a rough day at the office and they have no clue that you had a rough day at the office. They have no clue. And they're like, mama, dada. Like, and it's just, it's awesome. Like, you know, it's like, it's uh, coming home is like ice cream every day. Yeah. 
Put them in the bed is also pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, but yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's like because because it doesn't matter. They they don't care whether you had a good day or a bad day. Yep. They're they're yep. they're just well, that's what they're, they're ready for, to go. Get a good day. Yeah. So every day's a good day. Vishal has been a, a great conversation, and we just want to give you an opportunity to how can you know customers reach out to you? How could you know whether they're first time home buyers, refinancers? How can they how can they find and connect with uh, with your company? Sure. Uh, I I think the best way to connect with us is next time you're. Um, you know, you're on a line at a, at a at a Whole Foods, or you know, sitting on a plane. Go to Better.com. Check us out. Uh, figure out whether we can help you get a get into a dream home, stop renting, or whether we can help you with a refinance and uh, um, and connect with us that way. If you have any individualized questions for me, my my email is vg at Better.com. Feel free to shoot me an email. It's a solid domain name score. Nice job. Yeah, that's uh, that's fantastic, and we we encourage everybody to you know check out better.com and learn more about uh, you know three minute uh, pre approvals and and much much more. So guys, thank you for having me. I think the thing I'd like to leave with you is um, we're making home ownership better for all Americans, and we're making it more accessible, more affordable. Um, we're helping people uh, consume what you know a core human need in a much much better way, and uh, we're just getting started. So thanks. Uh, thanks. We just want to take a moment to thank all of our listeners for joining us. Uh, you know, for Scott, hello, and uh, and Tom. Uh, this is Real Estate Is Your Business. You've been listening to Real Estate Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for this show, or to become a sponsor, email us at realestatebizshow at mouthmedianetwork.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Real Estate Biz Show. That's Real Estate B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, realestateisyourbusiness.com. Produced by Mouth Media Network and brought to you by Preview. Copyright 2017. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thanks for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.